0: Blessed time in this word. Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah chapter one, just the first four verses. We'll hear God's words. Nehemiah one one through four. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the Citadel. But Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words. That I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. May God bless his words to our hearts today. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will hear today about a man with a broken heart. And it is quite amazing how the Bible that was written... Starting, starting about three and a half thousand years ago, is so applicable. Of course it would be. It was God's word to them, but it was also God's word to us. And today we will look at the book of Nehemiah, starting there. You will see that it is particularly applicable to our time. Today, our headings are the reminder of where Nehemiah was, second, the report of the situation in Jerusalem, and then third, the response of a Christian man. Our goals are that you too will have a broken heart, cry, and mourn when you see the weakness of the church today, and learn to help, to strengthen her, so that the one who gave his life for her Will rejoice. We begin by looking first at where Nehemiah was, a reminder of where Nehemiah was to give context to the book. I remember we were looking in the last few times I've been here, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was there before and at the beginning of captivity. Then 70 years passed. And then God set his people free. They had to be punished for their sins in Babylon for almost 70 years. They were sent into captivity because they were lusting for wealth. And because they lusted for wealth, they abused the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. And because they were lusting for wealth, worship of the true God was put on the back burner... And because in man there is always a desire to worship something, instead of worshipping the true God, Yahweh, they turned and worshipped idols. Now 70 years of punishment had passed, particularly symbolizing the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day, they were able to go back. Some escaped. Some were sent back by Cyrus, when God told him to send the people back and some remained in captivity by force and Jeremiah was one of those who was forced to stay back. He remained in Persia serving in the palace of the capital city of the Medo-Persian Empire. That is the context of where he was. Now Nehemiah His name means Yahweh Comforts. Yahweh Comforts, which was a strange name considering that he was a servant in Babylon, uh, in Medo-Persia. But he had a great job. He would taste the king's food to make sure it wasn't poisoned. It was one of the most important jobs in the Medo-Persian empire. Because you were so close to the king. And what is kind of interesting here is that. Here are all these Persians around. Here are the family and friends of the Persian king. And he takes a Jew to be his food taster. Someone who is supposed to be the enemy of the Persian people. It showed how God had worked and made Uh, Nehemiah liked by the king. That he would trust him. With his very life. Now this took place in November. December. That's the time we consider Chislev. And there's a reason for that. As you will see later. Now here is Nehemiah. A slave. But in a good situation. And he is a Jew. By Relations. He likely wouldn't have come from uh, Israel because that would have been way almost a hundred years now uh, would have passed. But he had to wait there. He had to sit and wait for his commission as a servant to a foreign king. But in this waiting, this is why you see this interesting way in which God was working in him. Even though he was a servant, He had access to diplomats and to foreigners. He learned, listening to the king, the art of negotiations. He learned how to entertain people of higher positions. And this was an important part of what he would do in the future. At the time, he probably couldn't see how all of those things would be helpful for the kingdom of God. It might have seemed like a wasted time. You know, you can get impatient when things don't turn out the way you want. But God was using that as a preparation for the work that he was going to do. That's the situation with Nehemiah. What can we learn from this first point? First of all, think about what a mighty God we serve. No one can stop him from doing his work. He said that Judah would be punished for 70 years in captivity. And Judah was. He said that the Medo-Persian Empire would conquer the Babylonian Empire. And it did. And by the way, when when, when the Lord said that the Medo-Persian Empire would conquer the Babylonian Empire. There was no Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, there was no Medo-Persian. The Medes and the Persians were enemies at that time. And yet the Lord predicted that they will come together and that they will destroy the Babylonians. And then he would set his people free. God told Cyrus in a dream to send the Jews back and and he did. He didn't want to tempt God. That's the mighty God we serve. No one can stop him. His church will never be defeated. Jesus said I will build my church. And the gates of hell. Will not prevail against it. He says all authority has been given to me. In heaven and in earth. And then he said go and make disciples. Of all the nations. Not in all the nations. That's the mighty God we serve. Second. On a more personal level. God can lift you up anywhere you are. And make you progress in life. Even in the midst of opposition, he will build you up, and he will build your family up, and he will build your church. Troubles are just a normal part of life. And Nehemiah had to serve as a servant for many years, but that was all part of his training. God would lift him up. So. Third, it doesn't matter your limitations you have in your life. You can still be productive for God's kingdom. And that's the angle of redemption that we see here. God not only saves us, but he sanctifies us in order to build up his kingdom. So it doesn't matter what limitations you have. Remember, he was a eunuch in a foreign land. And God used him in such remarkable ways in history. Now you're not, you in a single, you in a foreign land. But there are other things. Do you have children? Work with them. Prepare them for ruling the world. You don't have children. Help those who do have children. So that they can do the work of the Lord. You say, well I'm old, I have limitations. Well you can sit by the phone and make some telephone calls. You might not be able to text with those tiny little letters, but you can type an email and send it to someone else so that you use even the limitations you have and still work for the kingdom of God. You can fix computers. Well, help others who need their computers fixed. Are you an elder? Well, help others to oversee their spiritual lives. Even if you are illiterate, you can't read and write, you can love people. You don't need to spell to be able to love. You can speak kindly to those who come to church. You can invite them to your home. You don't need a 12th grade education for a bowl of soup. That's the wonder of how God uses us in all our different positions. Even if you are a child, you can help your parents to care for the younger ones. For your younger brothers and sisters. Or you can be a friend to somebody who doesn't have any friends. Maybe you're in school or maybe you come to church and no one is talking to another child. You can go and talk to that child. You can be a friend. And in so doing, even though you are a child, you're working for the kingdom of God. Four. You must patiently wait and prepare how God may use you to serve in his kingdom. Maybe you don't have a husband yet or a wife. Maybe you want to be a teacher. Maybe you want to be a pastor. Maybe you just want to be an encourager. Well, let God prepare you now. Learn what you need to learn. Read good books. Get the training you need. Learn how to manage your house. Learn to care for others. This is all part of the preparation and the waiting that God wants you to go through. This takes time. But God's not in a hurry. He doesn't panic. He's not biting his fingernails. He not only designates the goals, but the means to those goals. So you don't become a pastor by someone zapping you. You start to study. Get the training. You want to be a wife? Get the training to be a wife learn the things that or the skills that are necessary. And one more lesson. You have to learn to work with others for the sake of the kingdom. You notice how Nehemiah was limited. He was stuck there in Shushan. And the friends came from Jerusalem with the news. And now they're trying to figure out how they can work together for the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem and helping in the kingdom of God. You have to learn to work with others for the sake of the kingdom. You know why? Because Christ's honor is at stake. Christ's honor is at stake. Let's come to our second point. We remember where he was, Shushan, getting his training and biding his time for the great task to come. But then he gets a report about the situation in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. One of Nehemiah's brothers came with other men and brought news from Judah about the condition in Jerusalem. They came on a long journey, likely for the purpose of bringing this news. Now, were these people, it says in verse 2, Hananiah, one of my brethren, were these Nehemiah's brothers? The answer is yes. They were spiritual brothers. So they were real brothers. They didn't have the same DNA. But they had the same blood of Christ that saved them. They were of that one blood. And then Nehemiah asked about the state of those who had returned from captivity. And those who who had been originally left there. Seventy plus years have passed. Closer to a hundred probably. He wanted to know if they were suffering. Or if they were prospering. He wanted the walls of Jerusalem to be repaired and the temple rebuilt. Did that happen yet? Was there security for the people? And if there is security for the people. Were sacrifices being made to God again? Were the Levites praising God? Was there talk of the coming Messiah? The, The center of Israel's spiritual life. Was the coming of the Lord Jesus. What's interesting is that with all his dignity and honor. In the king's palace. In the palace of the greatest nation on the planet at that time. He was concerned about this dilapidated city. In Canaan. He was concerned about Jerusalem and its. Horrible state. He never forgot who he was. It was like the psalmist. If I forget you Jerusalem. May my tongue stick to the top of my mouth may I never speak another word that's his love for the church of Jesus Christ that's his love for the coming Messiah he's thinking that's the land from which Jesus would come and he would not let that go look at his concern but the report he got from them was not good for the Jews were in great distress the Bible says Jerusalem was in a deplorable state. The walls were still broken down. The gates were gone. Even the hinges from the gates were gone. And then the people faced threats. The neighboring Samaritans, and you will see more about that in the continuing in this chapter. The neighbors posed a threat. And you remember in the days of Haggai, one of the first returning prophets that the people started to rebuild the temple, but then the threats came, so they stopped. Twenty years later, they had only redone the foundation of the temple, and they were starting slowly to build, but they were too busy. There were too many threats around them. The neighbors terrorized them. And then the holy seed of God, the people of God, were in great reproach. People looked at them and mocked. Where is your God? Look at the state of where things are. You know there was a time when the Philistines. Attacked Israel during the time of Eli. And took away the Ark of the Covenant. And God plagued them with some severe plagues. Of probably the bubonic plague. With the rats and the tumors. And when they saw that they said. Now we are going to send this back. Because we know who that God is. And he will destroy us. Now there's total contempt. Because they could see how God's people were living. And God was not helping them. So they mocked him and terrorized them. And with the walls broken down. Thieves could roam around and steal at night. Murderers could go around uninhibited. Wild animals. And they did move in packs back then. Dogs, wild wolves. Would attack people at night. So they're defenseless. And nothing was going well. Even the entrances to the city were burned. All the way back from maybe a hundred years before by the Babylonians. And never rebuilt. More than that, Judah had become a simple province of the Medo-Persian Empire. They were not the independent people of God. Remember what God promised when they entered in the land of Canaan. If you walk with me in the blessings of Mount Gerizim. You will be the head and not the tail. You will lend to many but you will borrow from none. But now they were desperate. They were serving a foreign king and sending money to him regularly. So he did not destroy them. Look at where they had come. Look at the state of Jerusalem at this time. More significantly. There was no worship of God. It was very limited. And what's the greatest purpose in life? It is to worship God. But it couldn't do it properly. And God was being robbed. That's the saddest state of things. The saddest state of things. So, what can we learn about this? About this report on the situation in Jerusalem. Let's remember first what is it that unites God's people? You are of one blood of the Lord Jesus, and therefore you must care for each other. You don't have the same DNA as the person who might be next to you, but you're closer to that believing person. Than with your own family member who does not know Jesus. Think about that. You know why? You have the blood of Christ flowing through. You have a new home. You know where you will spend eternity. The one who doesn't know Jesus Christ might be your blood relative now, but will spend eternity in hell. Pray for them, of course, that they will come to know and serve Jesus. But you see the care that Nehemiah had for his brothers and sisters. And how he was moved by the difficult situation that they had at home. We may not even be children of the same race. But as one commentator said we are children of the same grace. The one blood of Jesus Christ. So we are united in Christ first of all. Second as brothers and sisters we are then to care for each other. And there is no excuse Whether believers are near or far. If you don't take care of them. That means you have to put effort to find out. You know ignorance is not bliss. You need to find out where people are suffering for their faith. Think of what's happening in Nigeria right now. And the slaughter of Christians. Or the imprisonment of the reformed brothers in China. Think of all those women who will be tortured in Iran for their faith in Jesus Christ. All over Africa, for that matter, where Muslims have targeted our brothers and sisters. Help them. Many of them have lost their loved ones. Think of the 50,000 Christians in the last couple of years that were murdered in Nigeria alone. Let alone places like Uganda Somalia, Sudan South Sudan, so many Christians have been killed take the time to know so you can care for them you see they're part of the same family they're part of the same kingdom of God of which you are a part you might live in your comfortable life here but know there are brothers who are starving and not because of laziness just simply because of harsh providences Help them. Third. As brothers and sisters in Christ. You must care about the worship of God. You must make sure it is possible. It must be heart wrenching. When you are not able to worship. Did it pain you. When the government put laws against us. From gathering for worship. It should have. Because worship is such a precious thing. Do you miss if you can't come to church one Sunday? Even for two services, it should. And children, boys and girls, remember this. You must understand that when what we're doing here in church is the most important thing you can do in your life. And you need to learn to do it. It's not natural. It's natural to be playing with toys and running outside and digging holes and, and climbing trees. But you have to learn. you have to learn to focus when your mind wanders away, that you come back to it, come back to it what God has called you to do, because worship is so precious to God. So what was Nehemiah's response? We see where he was. We're reminded of that. We have the report of the situation in Jerusalem. How did he respond? The response of a Christian man. Well the Bible says. Nehemiah listened carefully. And then his heart. Was broken. So he sat down. And wept. And this was a cry. You remember Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon. Where we sat down. Yea we wept when we remembered. Zion. Zion. The longing for God and his people. The longing for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The longing for the place from which Messiah would come that was under threat at this time. No wonder there was this pouring out of tears before the Lord. He cried because he was really sad. And this wasn't some distant story that he could put out of his mind. These were brothers who were really suffering. This was worship that was truly lacking. You know it's easy sometimes to compartmentalize that big word. You can just have, oh I'm sad now but then I go about my other things and I put other things out of my mind. This occupied his life because this was the center of his life. Also we know that his sorrow was not temporary He shed tears and then he mourned for many days. And the normal way to mourn was to put dust and ashes on your head. To show like you are buried by the troubles that you have. And he did this for three months. But he didn't just cry outwardly and then mourn inwardly. He went further. The Bible says he then fasted. And then he prayed. He started off with tears. That's the first emotion. But then it got deeper. And his response is I couldn't eat. I had to pray to God for what needed to be done. He did not fast and pray to the gods of the Medo-Persians. You know if he did that. That would have ingratiated him to the king. The king of the Medo-Persians. But no he, he fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. To Yahweh. This pleased the real God. And you know, he could have said, Look, um, my life is comfortable. I don't want to mess up a good thing. Maybe I'll send a little bit of money and, and save my conscience and, and continue doing the work that I'm doing here. But he didn't. He could have just gotten angry. You know, sometimes you get angry when you see the terrible things that are happening. Recently, our prime minister telling someone to really get your life in order and pray to God so he will clarify your view about abortions and he will support abortions those things can don't they make you angry but you can just get angry and do nothing if you are simply angry when our premier or prime minister does something bad and you just say and you say well what are you doing about it well I'm really angry that's not enough When you get angry, you must respond in the right way. You should be angry. There are many things. It's a sin if you don't become angry when you see sin. But you have to respond in a way that was necessary. And Nehemiah didn't say, well, I'm really angry. But now let me get a glass of wine and uh, some uh, cheese and relax. And I'll let that pass out of my mind. Or he could have just shed shed a few tears. And it's good therapy. You know that's what they do in many places of the world. When there's a funeral. You hire some people to come. And they will cry and stimulate the, the tears. And you cry a few tears. And then you get over it. He could have done that. No. He cried. He mourned. He fasted. And he prayed. For three months. And then he would petition the king. The love of Christ constrained him to act. He had to act. He had to act. But why fast? That's the interesting thing here. What is the significance of fasting? Well, fasting is a sacrificing of the body so the soul can focus on prayer. And this was especially common in the days of deep distress. You see more examples of this in the time of Esther. When she was going to petition the king, she said, Told Mordecai. Tell the people to fast and pray. And I will fast and pray. And then I'll go and see the king. Or Zechariah. Who fasted and prayed. For the returning Jews. To complete the work that they were called to do. Or Daniel when he called the people. To fast and pray. For the sins of the Jews. So that they could go home after captivity. See fasting and praying. Was a normal part of life. The days when Jesus were here, uh, was here. When Jesus was here he said. Don't fast and pray now because I'm right here. But a time will come when you must fast and pray. And yet this is one of the things. That has fallen into great disuse. In our society. In our Christian circles. But fasting and praying. Has always been a part. Of Christian life. And that's what Nehemiah set as an example. In his personal life. What can we learn? Lessons. First of all. Rich Christians must never forget the God who made them rich. Don't forget his children who may need your help. Remember Moses, the one who was designated to be the next ruler of Egypt. and When he was 46 years old, Acts 7 says, It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And then Hebrews reminds us, that he chose rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God. And to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And then you think of old Joseph. When you think of Joseph of the scriptures. He grew up in very difficult times. Like Nehemiah was even imprisoned, Forgotten. Betrayed. And yet he cared for his brothers. The Lord used him to care. Just like Nehemiah. Even when he became the butler to the king, the wine taster, even so Joseph, when he became prime minister, did not say, well, I've got my life, everything's good. He told his brothers, you did evil to me, but God meant it for good. I'll take care of you. He took care of the church of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of difficult times. Second, take the time to learn, to listen and to learn about the troubles the church is in today. And those troubles are not only overseas, they're right here in Canada. Maybe they're even worse here in some ways because we have the sin of indifference where people don't care. They say, live and let live, you live your way, i live mine. And we do that even for the church. Remember the vow you made to that baby today. That you don't say, well, I'm not going to get involved. You have to get involved. Invest your time, invest your money, invest your abilities so that you can help the church in its troubles today. Third, learn to weep outwardly, learn to mourn inwardly for the state of the church. It is not a good time. This is where you are in the plan of redemption. The cross has already taken place. The Lord came, lived, died. Now we are out to build his kingdom. So praise will go up. That's why we evangelize. That's what Pastor Brian does what he does. Because evangelism is necessary. Because worship is lacking. And we must confess the church is losing ground. Especially in the western world. Christ's honor is lacking. So learn to weep. It will recover because the Lord said Jesus will reign until all his enemies become his footstool. We have work to do because God uses means. And you are the means by which the gospel is spread. And then third, learn to fast and pray. Not just weep and mourn. When there are important things, it is good and necessary to fast. Jesus told his disciples to do so. And maybe one more thing to add here. Teach your children to have a broken heart for the Church of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we're older, we become a little bit cynical. Take the time, read the Voice of the Martyrs update. Let them know the difficulty the church is facing. Talk about the weakness of the churches that are around and how much they need to be raised with the goal of helping to rebuild the church. Now we're thankful for the Reformed faith and the doctrines that we hold to. But how many churches have you gone to where there's even discipline? Where there's Lord's Supper properly administered? Where preaching is more like a comedy show and a storytelling time than the explanation of the word of re- words of redemption? Train your children Maybe you can't do as much, but make sure your children are trained. Let's conclude. Nehemiah, a true believer in Christ, showed his passion for the worship of God and for God's people. He lived a comfortable life and had a good future, but his love for God's honor and the welfare of God's people caused him to show great concern for them. But his concern was not just a feeling in his heart. His concern was... His concerns led to actions. His broken heart led to a godly response. And it started with fasting and praying. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, how pained are you by the state of the church today? A church without strong doctrine. A church with weak worship. Doing what people want rather than what God says. A church that is lacking in leadership. Most churches are this way in North America, sadly. I pray to God you don't think that the church is okay right now. And that it can continue this way for long. But then the question is. What are you going to do about it? Do you cry for her? Do you mourn for the church? Do you fast and pray for the church? Are you willing to work hard carrying the burdens of others? Maybe so others can help to build up the kingdom. Often remind my wife. only reason I can do what I do is because she supports me and that may be a way in which you're working for the kingdom but you should be working for the kingdom it's not in a good state now would you be willing to confront others with shallow doctrines that's love for them to do so it might be uncomfortable at the Thanksgiving meals but that's what they need will you let godly men lead you in worship Don't become preoccupied with shiny things of this world. Those shiny new cell phones and shiny new cars. It's okay to have those things. But it should never take away from your passion for the kingdom. And then do you work to bring in new workers? You can't do this work by yourself. You need to bring others in. And that's what you do by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, you're outside of the family of God and none of the benefits, even of eternal life, can be yours. So join God's God's family. God offers the entrance price, which is the life and death of Jesus Christ. It's free for you. It costs him. But if you take it, you take the offer of Christ's life and death, you'll be joined to the family of God, and then you will work together to increase the praise of God everywhere, building up his kingdom.